panel. Mr. Brandon Monroe, how are we, sir? I'm really well, Matt. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Winter is here and um, we're having to deal with it. We've got a two-jumper family here. Um, we'll brave it. Um, but you, um, you're, you're obviously getting in the kind of busy um, phase at the, at the moment and sort of running around the world and obviously advancing the, the, the project there. But generally, it kind of feels like it's a quiet period of contemplation. People are waiting for Uranium Prize to do all this heavy lifting. How are you viewing things? Yeah, look, I agree. It's been really quiet. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, undoubtedly, one of the reasons why uh, uranium, together with a lot of aspects of the news cycle, is quiet is because of what we're seeing in the Middle East at the moment and people making sense of that and people being generally distracted by that. Uh, a number of the uh, commentators that I would normally follow on Twitter for broad-based energy information, including on the nuclear power sector. They're obviously very focused on what's happening in the Middle East. And that's just really pushed a, a variety of things off the new cycle agenda, including the war in Ukraine, which is far more directly relevant to the nuclear power sector and to energy in Europe. So that's one aspect. I think the other thing, Matt, is that we talked in the last show about the market waiting to see what happened and what would happen with the pullback in the spot price. So for people who missed that show, uranium went up relentlessly, really, from about $50 a pound to $73 a pound and then pulled back into the 60s. Oh, what a, what a terrible thing. And uh, we weren't too concerned last week. And what we've now seen in the last few sessions is uranium move from $69 a pound up to just over 70 so $70.50 as we're recording. So what does that mean for the sector? Well, mostly it means that there's still a lot of confidence there. And that makes sense because we're operating off fundamentals at the moment. Uh, this isn't a pullback that's been generated through a lack of buying. It's not that Sput, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust has been in the market and now they're not. Uh, this is just a pullback that probably was an initial hesitation in the market and a response to because that promised announcement that they would resume full production in 2025. The market's digested that. They've thought about it. They've kind of yawned. They've probably imputed a little bit of concern about whether that's fully achievable in 2025. And they've realized that regardless of that, the supply deficit's going to be there. And so that's why we've seen Uranium just in the last three sessions up $1.50, quite substantial. Uh, the other thing is we've got the NEI, that's the Nuclear Energy Institute's Uranium Forum next week. So to remind people, at this time of year, there's two big conferences that, are, that go on in the nuclear power world and in particular in the nuclear fuel cycle world. The first is World Nuclear Association Symposium at the beginning of September, and that's what lit the little fire under the uranium spot price that uh, we saw go up to $73. Then we have the NEI's Uranium Forum next week, which is predominantly US utilities, but uh, having a look at the list there, there seems to be a lot of European utilities coming, which is a bit unusual, but not surprising, given that fuel buyers around the world are trying to get hold of the best information that they possibly can at any point in time. 
So not surprising that a lot of market players would be deferring their decisions where they can until they've been on the ground for those couple of days uh, in the US just to make sure that they're operating off the latest information but also the latest take on sentiment. So that'll be one to watch. It'll be interesting next week and the week after. Uh, the world will start to come to terms with the implications of what's happening in the Middle East. So that'll be less of a distraction. And then we can get on with digesting the still very positive fundamentals that are driving the uranium price. And uh, I certainly believe will drive the spot price higher from uh, $70 where we are at the moment. Okay, well, well said. Like, and I, I'm going to say, like, yeah, neither you or I in position to kind of, kind of comment on on the, the Middle East at any, any level of detail. But you know, my thoughts are with both sides there, and I hope humanity prevails and this 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 insanity stops. Um, it's time for the world to kind of step up, not supply weapons, but step up and and, and try and uh, get to a position where people are not needlessly dying. Um, right. Um, it. Right, we've got to get positive here. We're going to get positive, and we're going to say, therefore, we're going to start with winner of the week, and this week's winner wins very little prizes, so this they might might rejoice at this one. Who are you awarding it to? So the great nation of Bangladesh. And, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, no, good on them. Good on them. They're pretty good at cricket, and they're now pretty good at nuclear power. So Bangladesh becomes the world's 33rd nation to introduce nuclear power, um, well ahead of the almost great nation that I'm recording from here, Australia, who seem to be on a Labor Party-driven path of being the last country in the world to introduce nuclear power, but we're trying to change that. So Bangladesh has celebrated that milestone. They're not quite there yet, but they've received the nuclear fuel delivery from Rosatom, the Russian giant. So apart from being an award for Bangladesh itself, this is a continued deployment of the Rosatom Russian government strategy, which has proved extremely successful, which is to, uh, first of all, produce high-quality nuclear componentry and nuclear power plants on time, on budget. Both of the reactors being built at Rupur in Bangladesh will be constructed in six years, which is a tremendous achievement for a first-comer nation. Uh, particularly with a challenging operating environment like in a country like Bangladesh. So that's great work uh, by Rosatom. But when you look behind all of that engineering, you realise there's a very astute geopolitical game being played here that's uh, been played very well, I must admit, uh, by the Russians for um, a decade now. And what they came to realise that with the West throwing the bath, uh, the baby out with the bathwater when it came to nuclear power and a number of high-profile failures to deliver on time and on budget by the West, that left a vacuum for Russia while China was seeking to catch up. And so they delivered. And in fact, uh, Ros Adams building about 30 nuclear power plants in 10 countries at the moment, if you include Bangladesh in that. Now, what does that really mean? Well, if you use Bangladesh as the example, so Russia has provided 90% of the finance for the nuclear power plants. So um, that's made it accessible for a country that otherwise might not have the financial might of a first world country. They're also supplying the fuel. 
They'll provide the operating expertise for the first period of time while Bangladeshis are trained up and um, able to run their own plant. And then they'll take the spent fuel away afterwards and deal with it. That's a long relationship. Apart from the decade of courtship that uh, the Bangladeshis and the Russians would have engaged in in the lead up to the uh, financing and then construction of this plant, uh, a nuclear power plant, as we well know, have an operating life in the multi-decades. And so there will be an umbilical cord in an energy sense or a pipeline, you might say, connecting Bangladesh with Russia on these two nuclear power plants that will endure for decades. That is a clever, clever way to use your industry to obtain geopolitical reach and of course, with those financing packages, it's most attractive to the countries that need consistent baseload clean energy the most, which is the developing world, the countries that are desperate to bring their citizens out of energy poverty and into a semblance of standard of living that reflects what we're able to enjoy in the West. And that's bang on brand for Russia with every all of the messaging that they're delivering via BRICS and their other outreach into the developing world. For better or for worse, it's consistent. So well done to Bangladesh. They've got there. Uh, it's going to make a big difference for their uh, country given its size and its level of development. And what it means is that with that level of baseload clean energy, it gives them a whole lot more options with their other energy mix uh, to, to be able to provide what their industry and their people need um, without going straight down a dirty, carbon-intensive path, it's it's also quite interesting, Meek, because it's it's not it's not. We've always talked about the geopolitics and you know expanding relationships and friendships and partnerships um, in in your kind of you know geopolitical uh, reach, as it were. But things like the other kind of component, I think, I'm not sh sure you mentioned it. I'm so I'm dealing with a slightly dodgy line this morning. Um, is the export uh, credit facilities as well provided by uh, Russia uh, or China. Um, and, you know, not necessarily always to countries that can perhaps afford this or plan these things out properly, which then kind of puts them in the back pocket of their partners in the sense that whether it be, in this case, you know, energy requirements or roads or hospitals or other infrastructure um, programs means that, you really, really are embedding yourself. This goes beyond energy. And I think that's the interesting, clever, but strategic bit of, of these um, deals, which perhaps the West is a little bit hampered by because it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of, you know, single layered as opposed to multi-layered type uh, deal in, in, in that sense. Um, Look, um, we yeah, listen. We're going to rip through this because I think we, we we need to be quick because you've got places to be, and I think we're suffering from a little bit of a tricky uh, line here. So um, perhaps everyone's favourite is um, the bungle of the week. Who are we awarding that to? So it's it's an achievement that's got a bungle in it. Now that we actually had to scratch hard for bundles this week because the, the world seems to be doing good things when it comes to energy and nuclear power. Uh, the bungles awarded to the Greens Party of Germany because they're again. Well, Again, well, they they set the standard in energy bundles. I'm afraid they they even set a bar that the Australian government can't even reach. Sometimes this week in particular, 
So what we've seen is we've seen some major progress by the EU to first of all resolve some of the enormous distortions in their energy sector and secondly to resolve their differences, in particular the fundamental differences between Germany and France on the role of nuclear power. But the German Greens Party just won't let go of it. So the bungle is awarded to them because they continue to try and undermine the process and they're continuing to try and uh, subvert the process as it moves from the European Commission to the European Parliament. So what are we talking about in the broader context? People who followed our show or otherwise followed the energy sector in Europe for some time uh, will understand that one of the key distortions in their market was to set electricity prices in the EU according to the marginal cost of production of gas. So that seems like a great idea when you've got Nord Stream 1 operating, you've got Nord Stream 2 around the corner, you're getting lots of cheap Russian gas. And probably, and I will say probably, there was a fair hand in that selection process from the Russians themselves because what better position to be and then have one of your customers price their entire energy grid off the supply of your product. Now, in hindsight, of course, it's you know the shortcom shortcomings of that approach have been laid bare. So the EU is trying to deal with that. They're trying to fix it. And amongst the mechanisms introduced in this reform package is a uh, a way of providing government support to different forms of power generation. So the EU has a long history of providing enormous support and subsidies to intermittent renewables and punitive measures with no real support, certainly no centralised support to the nuclear power industry. And they've realised, because of the folly of the last few years, that actually that's not such a clever idea. France has again asserted itself after a long period in the energy wilderness as a um, as a energy player in the EU, and they've demanded that nuclear power should receive the same benefits as intermittent renewables, for example. Now, the way that they've decided to do it in the EU is not a bad compromise, all things being equal. It's, it's certainly not preferential to nuclear power. It, the structure of the compromise benefits intermittent renewables more than nuclear power, but you know, in, the, in our industry, we'll take what we can get, and it's a pretty good compromise. Essentially, what they're saying is, if a government's going to provide financial support to an energy source based on a given price, there has to be a contract for difference so that above a ceiling, that energy source needs to give back to the government any um, gains that it makes above that ceiling. So, okay. Fair enough, if uh, there's a logic to it. The reason I say it penalises nuclear power more than intermittent renewables is because um, nuclear power's got a lot more potential to take advantage of energy shortages in the EU, particularly since a lot of those shortages will be caused by intermittent renewables going forward. So uh, there is still a degree of cross-subsidisation of nuclear for intermittent renewables. The idea being that the value of those contracts for difference, so the value of the peaking power revenue gets rolled back into consumers and customers to protect them from these 
higher cost of power. Not too bad, as I say, but the German Green Party would rather unravel the whole thing to protect their sacred cow, which is their anti-nuclearism. And uh, we'll put some links in the show notes where you can go and see how they're still trying to undermine that. So Progress and the German Greens Party don't have a particularly sound relationship, I'm afraid. It, it's, it's, it's really kind of quite frustrating to watch, you know, fr- from, from afar. This nimbyism from the, the German Green Party is... I mean, it's only schoolchild um, obvious. Um, I think that um, yeah, outsourcing your energy requirements, you know, to to France, uh, so that your factories, which have to shut down in in twenty twenty two, so that they can keep running, is I mean, it's it's, ch- it's childish at best. It's 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 absolutely infuriating. But uh, hopefully, as you say, there's a kind of momentum. Um, building here and energy as part of the the basics and fundamentals of um, life um, will kind of prevail again, again, again. Right. Um. Let's let's. Okay. Here's a question for you. I've got a question for you. And, and apologies for rushing rushing this through this week, folks. I'm listening to this or watching this. If, if, there's a there's a there's a few weeks ago. It's a sli- slightly old story, but um, I, I was kind of surprised that not, you know there wasn't a lot of conversation around, which is around um, yellow cake exercising their 2023 uh, uranium purchase. Option. Why do you think that kind of got washed under the bridge? Yeah, it's a good question because um, I agree. It it just seemed to go unnoticed. Uh, so for everyone who may have missed it, Yellow Cake, since it listed in 2018, its key asset, apart from its business plan to raise money and store physical uranium, was that they obtained a long-dated option with Kazatomprom to buy $100 million worth of uranium per year. Now, there were a couple of aspects to that that were very attractive. There there was some um, preferential pricing built into that, but the most attractive thing is the way that the option was structured. They can basically say, yes, we intend to exercise the option because Adamprom gives them a price based on the current spot price. They then have 14 days, I think it is, to raise the money before they confirm if they're going ahead or not. Now, in an upward rising market, a lot can happen in 14 days, and that's precisely what happened. So by the time they confirmed that, yes, we've raised the money and we're going ahead, the uranium price was already up $5 a pound compared to what they were paying for Zadon. The other great feature of this option is if they turn around after the 14 days and say, look, we've only raised half or it didn't work or we don't want all of it, that option doesn't get extinguished. It carries on for the balance of that uh, calendar year. So, because um, Prom has very recently announced that uh, it's going to be short again on its planned production for this year, it did take into account the assumption that that option would be exercised, by the way, uh, in in the way that it's talked to the market. And sure enough, Yellow Cake went out. They raised about a hundred, just over a hundred million pounds sterling, and have used that to buy about one point four million pounds of uranium. Now that's that's a really good thing. It confirms that uh, that uranium won't be available to the broader market. It's going from Kazatomprom. Kazatomprom, in reality, are going to have to go into the spot market and buy that uranium because uh, they're a little bit short on their production. So that puts further pressure 
It indicates that the investing community is very ready to fund a reasonable capital for the purpose. So it says a whole lot of great things about the sector. So why didn't we hear more? And I've thought about that. And I think one of the reasons was that very soon after they announced the capital raising, they also announced receiving delivery of 1.35 million pounds of uranium. And I think a lot of people got confused between the two things. The 1.35 million pounds of uranium was the delivered uranium from the 2022 option that they exercised with Kazatomprom. It's just that when they did that deal, Kazatomprom um, asked for more time and they said, well, look, that's okay. Um, Mid-year sounds all right to us. And that had been recently delivered. So I think it was a combination of that and the fact that there's just been so much positive news in the sector that uh, it wasn't a particularly big headline. I mean, John Quake still gave it a yeehaw, which uh, for keen followers he, he of John Quake's on Twitter, it's not a yeehaw. But that's the trouble, isn't it? When when you when you've come off the back of three years of yeehawing, um, it's 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 kind of hard to kind of see what it's not Peter and the Wolf, but it, it, it's kind of um, oh, I want to be not. Sorry, this is not John Quake's thing. Okay, he, he's a massive asset to the sector. This is more about the the total amount of yeehawing that's been going on for three years, and that goes back to the beginning of this conversation, which is like it feels like people are kind of a bit tired of the yeehawing, and now starting to see some fundamentals drive this thing. So, like yeah, things like yellow kicking, you know, taking a um, a lot of inventory off the table is a good, strong fundamental. Um, you know, li li likewise with the others, um, and likewise with utilities. Actually, you know, by you know, doing term contracts at higher and higher rates, these are real things in, in in a real market. Nothing synthetic about trying to desperately look for the next yeehaw moment. So, um, I think there's a good one. Um, it feels it feels real. Um, and I don't know, between now and Christmas, it kind of feels like there's going to be more of these these sorts of moments which actually genuinely have an effect on on, on price rather than wishful thinking. Um, right. Twit, we, sometimes the tweet of the week are, are, are actually, you know, really, really strong and they, they are yeehaw ones. Um, we've got a slightly more serious intellectual tweet of the week this week. Who are you, who are you giving this to? So the trend of the week, and we'll put it on the screen, is for Andrew Coate. And he's reminded us of what the petroleum companies were thinking back in the 50s when nuclear power's potential was just starting to be understood. So we can see from this tweet that it's, it's uh, taken from uh, Shell and their analysis and they... At that stage, many of the major petroleum companies were starting to look at investing into the US, and many of them did into the uranium sector in the US and elsewhere. And they anticipated that petroleum would play a diminished role that would be absolutely dwarfed by nuclear energy. And if you look at the trajectory there, anticipated trajectory of nuclear energy, it was pretty accurate up to about uh, sort of mid-80s. That's before the Sierra Club and the Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace got involved and decided to deliberately sabotage uh, what we now know is humanity's safest, cleanest, and uh, most, generally speaking, uh, most sustainable form of energy at scale. So 
couple of things to note, a couple of things that are interesting about this. One is how far short nuclear energy has fallen of its potential. And, you know, there's a lot of us in the industry who want to try and start making up that gap. If you were to look at the right-hand axes there, it projected in the US that nuclear energy would be peaking at about 1,000 gigawatts in the US. Now, it's more like 100 gigawatts in the US, a, a touch underneath that. So it's only got to the first um, line there on that right-hand bar. What's fascinating is because of shale gas, which wasn't on the conscience of any uh, petroleum companies back in 1956, uh, the US... Um, equivalent in billions of barrels a day is more like six and a half billion. So it's even off the scale when it comes to petroleum. So you can look at that and you can say, there's the world's climate crisis in one graph. Uh, if nuclear power had been allowed to realize a greater share of its potential, uh, there we'd be in a much, much better place. And that's just the US, but it's highly indicative of when it comes to nuclear power, many other parts of the world. So what will be fascinating going forward is to what extent do the major oil companies and the mid-tier oil companies start to blow the dust off some of this analysis that was done? And how do we see them start to transition their business model from purely hydrocarbons with a little bit of renewable greenwashing sprinkled on it through to genuine at scale energy production that's carbon free and that only is nuclear and hydro it's it's uh well as ever fascinating i think we'll maybe try and um do a couple of articles on what we see there and that part of the conversation but for, for, for today we kind of i say got to keep it short um but we we are going to kind of come full neatly into i guess the next potential source of of energy, we, and we've written a few articles about this on the CroxInvestor.com website. So we're definitely worth having a, a search and a, and a look at, at those to try and understand it a little bit more. But you are going to—we've got moonshots and fizzers. It's the last section. So you, what are we going to be talking about here? So we can make it quick because of the work that you've already done on the subject: hydrogen produced from nuclear energy. Uh, every chance of it being a moonshot. And that's because there's a couple of ways of making hydrogen from nuclear energy as opposed to other forms of electricity that offer a lot of potential to be far cheaper than, say, cold electrolysis, which is the classic green hydrogen model, if you call green restricted to only wind and power. So the first is instead of cold electrolysis, it's hot electrolysis. A standard nuclear reactor produces waste heat at about 300 degrees. That's why they need cooling towers or a, or a water body to um, distribute the, uh, the water from the steam turbines. So if you're heating an electrolysis process and then using the electricity to make hydrogen, it's actually far more efficient. Go a step further, which is um, in the process of being demonstrated with high-temperature gas reactors or HTGR reactors, they are a next generation form of small modular reactor that operate at 700 degrees Celsius and even more. That then opens up the possibility of thermochemical production of hydrogen. That's a different way of making it. And the expectation in the industry is that th uh, thermochemical production of hydrogen using H2GR reactors 
on a full cost basis is likely to come in well below the $2 per kilogram that hydrogen's produced as grey hydrogen from natural gas at the moment and be highly competitive. So apart from being competitive in an economic sense, uh, I would see this as really being a moonshot revolution of the hydrogen sector because by and large, it won't require transportation. If you're a big industrial center and you need a lot of hydrogen because you know, you've got a smelter that you've converted to green steel or whatever it might be, well, yes, you could put the infrastructure out to a port and import that hydrogen from Western Australia or wherever else it's being made with renewables. Or you could just put an HTGR reactor together with the thermochemical plant and put a couple of kilometres of pipeline and just pipe it to where you need it. And I think that's the direction it's going. Newsworthy this week because we've had, and we'll put it in the show notes, we've had um, government programs in both the US and Canada really at the same time uh, funding and promoting different hydrogen technologies, and both of them have included in their funding rounds uh, funding for nuclear technology and uh, nuclear energy alternatives for producing hydrogen. So that's really helpful because uh, much of what is understood in the nuclear industry but hasn't made it out into the general conscience will uh, become apparent after these funding rounds. So I'm looking forward to it being a moonshot. Of course, it's going to have a disruptive effect on many aspects of the hydrogen industry, including transportation of hydrogen and green ammonia. So watch those for their potential fissure implications over the next Absolutely. decade. Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing is like the, the, the states always do this go big or go home thing. Like we're talking about from Biden's case, you know, 7 billion bucks across 16 states. Canada, I think collectively might make 10 million uh, Canadian um, in terms of where the, where they they are on this one, so some some big headlines. Let's see what that actually converts into, and obviously the the, the timelines too. So if you're interested at all in the technology, maybe perhaps understanding it, and as an investor, perhaps, you know how to position yourself, do you go to the website and take a look at that. And obviously, um, the links um, on the um, show notes as well are, are are pretty good too. Um, we better wrap it up, man. Better wrap it up. Good places to be, people to see. Thankfully, no checks to sign. Well, we've got a we've got a summer starting in Perth, so your two jumper right. rule in your house. You know, we we're calling it the uh, put your boardies on and go for a swim rule in our house. All right, all right, okay. We're, we're, we and we won't talk about sports at the moment. I think we're 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 both hurting. We're both hurting from the from the Rugby World Cup, uh, whereas England get that free pass of. I, I think they're just being. They have been shown a route to the, the World Cup final, which has never been more kind or, or gentle, uh, whereas we're on our way home and watching this from afar. Anyway, you'll get your boardies on. I'll speak to you next week. Thanks, Matt.